and welcome into another episode of the 100 Year Podcast. My name is Adario Strange, and this week we have with us Roy Moore, the CEO and co-founder of Laura.ai. How you doing, Roy? Good. It's great to be here, Adario, and thank you for uh, inviting me. Thanks for joining us. Um, just so, just to cut straight to the chase, Laura is, I guess you would call it kind of like a an artificial intelligence, I guess, English tutor? Or English companion? Yeah, yeah I, I would call it an English tutor, which is in many cases an English companion, right? Because it's a very long journey uh, to become fluent in English for so many people all over the world. And uh, I think the biggest hurdle is that you have no one to talk to. And you don't need just to talk about uh, ordering something, you know, in a restaurant or making your own around the airport. You need to talk about what people really talk in their lives. Uh, building meaningful relationships, talking about uh, tech, talking about business, talking about whatever is interesting to them. Uh, and you need that someone to actually talk to and get feedback. Uh, and that's what we do. Kind of replacing the human tutor uh, so that anyone in the world can overcome this barrier that English fluency poses. So the, you know, one of the reasons you guys um, came up on my radar is I'm kind of like a lifelong language learner. Um, I previously lived in Japan. Um, when I first moved nice. there, I studied in Japanese school. And I can, I still have like a stack of Japanese uh, translation books, dictionaries, yeah. Japanese grammar books. Um, I used all of the software. Um, and I think most people out there will, you know, probably know of Duolingo. Um, of but there's also kind of like tools like um, or online platforms called iTalkI. I don't know if you've heard about that. Yeah, iTalkI, Preply, Cambly, like a marketplace for language tutors. Right. But, you yeah. know, the thing is, it's like, and, and this is kind of like, um, I don't think this is unique to me. It, it's just, you know, when you're studying language, particularly something that's very far from your kind of like native language, it's kind of embarrassing. You know, it's kind it of, um, there's, there's a lot of, you have to really build up your confidence. Right. Um, and particularly if you're in a different country, you know, people say, oh, immerse yourself. But what people don't understand is like if you're an expat in, in somewhere in Asia, you often naturally gravitate toward people who speak your native language. So you'll, you know, I found myself, you know, after Japanese school, you know, we'd go out for beers. And instead of like immersing myself in Japanese, I'd find myself with a bunch of other foreigners and we're all speaking English. And so right. the reason why I was fascinated by Lura is that it was this idea of harnessing kind of like the emerging powers of AI to finally give you this kind of, um, I guess, embarrassment-free zone where you can right. basically just, you know, to your heart's content, uh, basically yeah, so. just make all the mistakes, figure out, figure out right. all the, you know, the foibles or whatever. And so the first thing I'm, I'm, I'm wondering is like, why just English now? Like that, for me, it was frustrating because I was like, this is a, a brilliant idea, but just English? Like what, like, can you, so like, it's what's a great behind that? It's a great question. Um, so as I told you before the interview, like the name Lura came from another language. Lura is actually a uh, language in Arabic. Um, and when we started, my frustration, because my English is okay, uh, my frustration I think your was English like, is pretty damn good. <laughs> okay. It's okay for, yeah, not for an American, but for a non-American, it's okay. Um, and um, But I was really frustrated with learning a lot of languages including English, because I didn't have anyone, I don't live in the United States, and I didn't have anyone to speak English with. I was just reading. 
And as time goes on, your accent goes away and it becomes harder and harder to be yourself in the language and to express yourself. And you go on to talk to someone and you just feel stupid or embarrassed. And it's not a great feeling. And the only way to get over it is to actually practice speaking uh, on the things that you're interested in or that you work on. Um, but I was also frustrated. So I was learning Spanish at the time and I used to do sales in Spanish, like enterprise sales. And I was pretty good. And now I can barely have a basic conversation because it just goes away. And although Duolingo is such an amazing company, right? One, one of the best companies out there and with a great mission, it mostly caters to um, casual learners and people who kind of want to learn a language as a hobby and get from zero to a little bit. But if you really want to work in language or actually you know, make friends and, and be yourself in a language, it's just not the solution because you have to speak the language. Um, so it didn't help me with Spanish and I was learning French at the time. Uh, And it was the same problem. And I was learning Arabic at the time as a hobby. And like I, I did all the courses in all the apps and I didn't have time to go to a tutor. But then when I met someone in the street, like I couldn't barely, I couldn't even string like two sentences together because it's very different to actually have a conversation. Um, and out of that frustration, we said, wouldn't it be amazing if you just had like your own personal AI tutor in your pocket or you can just talk to whenever you want. How about whatever you want? And you're not feeling attacked. And if you don't know what to say, you can stop and think. Uh, and that way, anyone can kind of overcome this major barrier. Because as you said, it's hard to learn a language. And even for, uh, you know, immigrants in the U.S., uh, we say they can just speak English to American people, right? But they're embarrassed and they feel like they're not speaking well enough or they don't have around them people who they can speak to. Or even if they do, they feel more comfortable or it's easier for them after a hard day to go and speak with someone in their own language. Um, so I, I really, you know, uh, identify with or kind of empathize with, with the situation you had in Japan. Um, and I think the only solution to go through is an immersion that is not as hard, like an immersion that allows you to be yourself, but also, you know, not to make that much of an effort and to make mistakes and not to be embarrassed about it. Uh, and that was kind of the driving idea behind starting Laura. When we started Lura, which was 2020 or late 2020, and I was just doing my PhD, and which we can talk about later, and open domain dialogue or a free conversation, uh, the main issue was maybe it's impossible to build. Like the generative AI revolution didn't come yet. So it was clear for people in academia that it's coming, or people in academia who worked on that problem, but uh, it wasn't clear that you can build something like that that can allow people to... Uh, to be engaged and entertained and evolve and adapt uh, and talk about like more and more complicated things and as they progress uh, in order to actually learn English to, to the level of fluency that they need. And to get back to your original question, why just English? So, because I forgot the question, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> no, no, you came back, you uh, came back. I think there, If I crudely divide uh, the language learning audiences into two audiences, two, two groups, one group is people who learn languages as a hobby, like I learn Spanish, like you learn Japanese, uh, and they don't necessarily expect to reach a very high level of fluency. Um, and they learn a lot of languages, usually not English, um, and they learn it in order to be able to travel to a country, in order to be able to, you know, say a few phrases, uh, to you know, do cognitive training or just as a hobby. Um, but they don't need it as uh, uh, a way to actually improve their lives. Um, 
The other group is people who are struggling and they need to know English uh, because English is, you know, the global language thing. Without English, it's very hard. In the U.S. and outside of the U.S., it's very hard uh, to reach your goals and improve your life, both professionally and personally. And they usually already kind of know basic English and they can have a basic conversation, but they need to reach a level where they feel like themselves in English and they can be as smart as they are in, uh, you know, whether it be Spanish or Portuguese or, or Arabic or, you know, Chinese in English. And they can uh, do business and they can work and they can find better opportunities and it, they need a different product uh, because this product is a longer journey. Uh, it's more difficult or more complex conversations that you need to have. The feedback is more nuanced uh, and it's just a different product. You, you know, that's interesting. You, you talk about nuance. Um, I was kind of like looking at the entire universe of kind of, you know, the examples that you give and everything. And I noticed like you do spend a, a good deal of time talking about kind of cultural, I guess, code language. I remember there was one thing you, you talked about ghosting, not you, but there's like one uh, video I was watching kind of like you talked about what ghosting means in English, like little kind of like cultural phrases. <laughs> Yeah. So that kind of nuance is important. I'm curious, like what, so the target language is English in terms of practice. What, right. like, what's the list of like, how many languages can I speak to it in? Oh, well, actually and that's, that's not, uh, how many languages language. does it, is it aware of in terms of my, I guess, mistakes? Meaning if I speak Hindi and there are, there mistakes I'm, I'm assuming there are mistakes common Typical to mistakes for Hindi speakers. Right. So is that, yeah. So we are working to improve it all the time. Um, to be honest, because we're targeting people who already know some basic English, as opposed to people who don't know anything, then the product experience is in English. So you can translate anything and everything that there is in the app, and you can have like, you know, lifelines. If you don't know what to say, you can get a suggestion or you can uh, look up a word or translate what Laura said uh, and get like lifelines in your own language. And that's almost every language, I think. Maybe we're missing a few. Um, but the actual conversation is in English. With regarding to the feedback, then we are learning uh, for each audience, and we're better at the audiences where we have more users. Uh, what are the typical mistakes? And then we can help with them. Uh, but we can do a much better job at that. Like, we're not perfect there. It's hard to do, um, and we need more data. And the more and more data we have, uh, the better we learn what uh, feedback to give, uh, you know, what I type of typical, uh, mistakes people make. Well, in my own testing of the app, it was, um, I actually had trouble tripping it up. You know, I had to like really yeah. try to like dirty up my own English and, and like, right. I mean, it was, it, it was pretty good. And, and then, you know, I, I, I slowly began to figure out, okay, what kind of mistakes to make to get it to, you know, give Did me the responses and yeah. kind of like the testing, you know, the, the proof of, uh, function that I was looking for. Um, I want to rewind though. Let's let's talk about you for a second. Um, sure. You this isn't like your first, you know, I guess foray into AI. You've been, I mean, you're a computer engineer. Um, yeah. You've been studying machine learning for quite some time. I know you got your master's a few years ago. You just mentioned something about a PhD. I know you yeah. studied at Tel Aviv University. Can you did you did you yeah. complete your PhD recently, or are you still no, engaged? I, no, I dropped out very quickly to start Lura. Okay. Um, okay. Yeah, so I can give you like the usual spiel. Uh, oh yeah, yeah. Well, tell tell yeah. us about it. Yeah. So born in Jerusalem, <laughs> but now in Tel Aviv. Uh, Thirty eight, married to Maya, who's an amazing film uh, winning award winning film producer. Um, won the Israeli Oscar, 
uh, and much more talented than me. And I have a three-year-old son who is a menace. Um, and I founded Lura with my best friends for 20 years now, which means we're very old <laughs> already, uh, about three years ago. Um, I found my way into AI uh, by mistake. I started learning physics. So I did a two bachelor degrees. I have a bachelor degree in physics and I have another bachelor degree in electrical engineering. And during uh, my studies, what I found out is what I'm interested most in is what they now call machine learning. I didn't know it was what it's called, uh, but prediction and estimation and learning how to kind of, you know, do AI in a sense. Um, so we started both of us, me and my co-founder, Jonathan, uh, to learn on our own. We found a professor who will kind of advise us. Um, and then we looked for a place to work where we can actually, you know, do research uh, during our, our undergrad uh, studies. I went to work for Mobileye, which uh, is an autonomous vehicle company, um, a great company. And I got to do research and build, like, help. It's not here yet, but help build uh, autonomous vehicles. And then I went back to university for Mobileye. I did my master's in uh, computer science this time. Uh, I focused both on theory uh, and on um what they call in academia open domain dialogue, which is open conversation, uh, which is kind of what we do now. Uh, continued to my PhD and dropped out like a month or two after I started uh, in order to start Lura because I understood I want to build something and not just, uh, although I really love mathematics, I want to build and not just write papers. Gotcha. And can you, like, my understanding is that Google got involved with Tel Aviv University not that long yeah. ago in terms of funding. Did that have any impact on you and your studies? Were you able to kind of get some insight into what they were doing? So my advisor was and still working at Google, actually, I think working on similar topics because everyone is working on those topics. And a lot of our professors were working at Google or at uh, the Allen Institute, Uh so, yeah, in a sense, and, you know, they got a lot of uh, grants to work on AI. Uh, so we had uh, a lot of NVIDIA GPUs, so we could train a lot of models. So in that sense, yeah, me, myself, I didn't work at Google because I, I worked with Mobileye. Um, but, yeah, I think in general there was, in Israel, uh, pretty early on a sense that AI is super important. And in Tel Aviv University, they started bringing in a lot of professors uh, for AI. Uh, or machine learning, as we called it, um, because there were there was a shortage. A lot of people wanted to learn it. There were not enough professors. Um, and I think in Israel, we're mostly strong in theory. Um, and then the money from companies like Google and other companies who, you know, who uh, contribute to the university allowed us also to do uh, empirical studies, like uh, training models and do uh, stuff they usually do in industry. So I've spoken about um, Israel and AI, or we've spoken about it um, here before. We One of our previous guests was um, Roni Abovitz, uh, the founder yeah. of Magic Leap. And yeah. it's interesting, you know, Israel has been very strong in computer vision and AI and machine learning for some time. And a few episodes ago, we noted that, like, you know, among, like, the top four nations around the world, Israel, as, like, this tiny nation, seems to be – it's, like – ranked in, in that, that top tier. So, I mean, what is it that you, like, why, what would you attribute that to? Why do you think Israel is so, I guess, punching above its weight in terms of, like, AI, I guess, experts, research, study? So I think, I don't think it necessarily has something to do with AI specifically. I think it has to do with uh, Israel punching above its weight uh, 
in the startup ecosystem in general? Like when you think about uh, startup hubs or kind of, um, you know, where startups really work and a lot of companies, big companies start out of, Israel or Tel Aviv specifically is one of the top places in the world, which is really surprising because it's a very small place and there are not a lot of people. Um, but there's something about the, like the, the society and the spirit in Israel, which is very entrepreneurial, like not rigid, not bound by rules. I would say maybe a little kind of um, arrogant, even in a sense, uh, in Hebrew, we say chutzpah kind of dares to try stuff that are not necessarily obvious or maybe not within the confines of what you expect that you're expected to do. Um, and it became a thing like that a lot of Israelis just go out and, and they start companies. They don't uh, want to work at the place. They don't want to be, uh, um, you know, live a riskless life. They want to take risks. They want to build stuff. Um, and I would say it's really part of the, like the structure of society here, um, which is, really nice and there's a very or maybe an incredible even amazing ecosystem for startups in israel uh, me as a young or young and experienced not young in age but young uh uh you know entrepreneur i can just approach anyone in the ecosystem and they'll help me and they'll talk to me and they'll like guide me on what to do uh founders of companies like lightrix who invested in us or uh simply who does who uh, Simply Piano and Teaches Music is a very similar company. They're always helpful. Uh, any big yeah. company, you can just get in touch with the CEO and they'll help you. And that's amazing. I should mention you guys just uh, landed, I guess, last July, $9.25 million in funding. Yeah. Is that right? Yeah. So that, I mean, doing that outside of Silicon Valley is like, again, that's notable. And I think that's another reason why, you know, Israel in terms of AI, machine learning, uh, computer right. vision is on my... Here, the VC ecosystem here is, I would say getting, it's not Silicon Valley, but it's getting closer and closer. And, you know, a lot of big VCs opened offices in Israel. So Insight, they have a big office in Israel. Um, and they are aware of what's happening in the Israeli ecosystem. Um, and that helps a lot. So raising money out of Israel is not a struggle. Um as in other places or outside of Silicon Valley, which also helps. And in addition, I would say that academia in Israel is also very strong uh, or has always been very strong, uh, especially in theory. Um, but then AI, you know, there are strong mathematical, uh, uh, there's a strong mathematical basis and like a strong theoretical basis that is required to kind of, that was required to kind of start uh, the revolution that we're in now. And I think a lot of people in Israel uh, had a lot of experience in that area. So academically, they're also uh, relatively strong to, uh, um, you know, to the size of the country. So uh, and that also helps. So take me back to the app. Like when, when I use the app, um, it seems like it's mostly driven by, well, not mostly, but the deeper you get into the app, it seems like it's driven by in-app purchases. Like, can you give me kind of like the business? Because right now, we're in this period of AI sure. software and I guess emergent hardware where everyone is kind of like looking for their business model. So can you, what's your outline for your business model? Like how do you guys plan to actually become, you know, a profitable company? Yeah. So we're not profitable yet. Uh, though we did grow almost 10 X, uh, in 2023. Um, you guys have like a 4.5 rating on the iOS. 4.5. 
Actually. 4.9. I'm sorry. Actually, no, yeah. you're absolutely right. I'm sorry. I downgraded you. 4.9. No, okay. I think we deserve the 4.5. But uh, No, but 4.9 you know, is insane. That's insane. Yeah. Like you rarely see that like, rating. I think the product is still at like two out of 100. Like there's so much more we can do. And the reason is that it's so hard to build uh, an AI that actually uh, creates an, a great experience and engaging and personalized and uh, retaining experience over a very long horizon. And that's what you need to do in vertical or in consumer AI, right? Because if you just come and it's not proactive, especially if you don't speak the language and it doesn't drive the conversation and doesn't uh, get you engaged or talk about what's interesting to you uh, and kind of adapts the level to the level that you are feeling comfortable with or just pushes you a little bit and not too much, then you won't continue with the app. And the only way, since this is an ill-posed problem, like what's a good conversation really depends on the person, really depends on his English level and what's interesting to him or to her, uh, then the only way you can learn it is from data. Uh, so the more data we have, the more users we have, the better we can, uh, you know, the better product experience or conversational journey that we can have. And the more users stay and recommend to their friends and give us a better grade. Um, so the more we grow, we can train our own models and we can dive deeper into it because it's also not trivial how to train your models on your own data because you cannot train on what Laura says because that's, you know, cyclical. And you cannot train on the users because they don't know English very well. So, you so wait, to... wait, let's hit on that for a second. And I want to come yeah. back to business model, but sure. let's talk about open versus closed AI. Um, yeah. The EU, European Union, recently um, agreed on the AI Act. And yeah. this is basically a set of guidelines. I think it's not going to go into effect until 2026. But basically the idea is to... I guess, compel companies to be more transparent in terms of where their data is coming from, um, yeah. vetting, you know, kind of their models in, in front of some council. I don't know. Um, yeah. But what the big argument happening here in the States is this idea of, you know, open source versus closed AI and, and you know, uh, people or companies training their models on data that is either in the public domain or supposedly right. in the public domain or arguably in the public domain. Right. And then I just saw the lawsuit of the New York Times. Yeah, the New yeah. York Times versus OpenAI recently, yeah. that, that lawsuit. And then this idea of, and this seems to be, I, I, I suspect this will become very popular in 2024, which is this idea of content companies licensing their data to AI companies yeah. so that they can uh, right. train their models. So, I mean, where do you stand on all that? And I mean, can you disclose where you got your training data for Lura? So for us, it's very simple. Our training data is our own data. Like when we started, we used public data sets. And when we started, there was no chat GPT and there was no open AI API. So we trained our model on public data sets. Uh, you know, we started with an open source transformer. Uh, we didn't train it on all the internet because there's no point. Uh, and then we fine-tuned it on data that was relevant to us with losses uh, that were relevant to our use case. Um, but then as we gathered more and more data, and today, you know, we have like tens of millions of data points, um, and we gather more and more every day uh, at an increasing rate, then we just use our own data. Like there's no point in using other data. Uh, like we use the data of the conversations of our users with Lura in order to understand what's a good conversation. Um and the reason it's hard is because in order to understand what's a good conversation, you need to couple it with the 
with a business metric. Like, how do you know that it's a good conversation? Uh, you don't want to just imitate the conversations that you already have like they do in the big models, right? They just train to act like the data, right? Um, or align it to some predefined notion. But we don't know what's a good conversation. And we try to guess. It's very hard because it's different for any person. So what we do is we train, we optimize the models to be uh, better and better on retention and on like user satisfaction, which we have in our data. Like we can say this conversation was good. The person liked it and it came back to another lesson. This conversation was bad because they didn't come back. So we can use that in order to train our models. So we don't use like the New York Times data or publics. Well, weigh in. What do you think? Okay, so aside from Laura, like, like, do you think, let's just say all of the information on all the conversations on Reddit, all of the conversations on Facebook, all of the conversations just on the internet. Do you think that's fair game? Do you think that is licensable? So I think there are two uh, discussions that should be, uh, you know, well thought of. One is uh, open source versus uh, closed API, um, which is also a big discussion in the U.S. right now, right? And and the reason uh, people uh, say there shouldn't be open source is for safety reasons. Uh, I disagree, and we can discuss that. Uh, and the second discussion is about... Uh, IP, right? Uh, like content rights, uh, which is a different discussion. Um, and we can start with that. I think it's easier. In my opinion, <laughs> there is an issue with AI uh, using other people's IP. Um, because eventually a lot of what happens with, uh, for example, uh, you know, companies like Anthropic or OpenAI is that they memorize a lot of stuff that they saw on the internet and they kind of, you know, uh, retrieve it from uh, the model's weights and say it as if it's their own uh, without attributing, without, uh, you know, uh, paying or, or giving respect to the to the original uh, source of the data. Um, it's a, and it's an issue. Um, and I think it should be dealt with. I don't think there's an easy, easy solution because sometimes it's hard to know if you use the, like, specific data. So you would need to – the way we understand uh, large language models in the moment, we don't – really know to say, okay, here we memorized the New York Times, right? Or here we didn't use it. So you would need to have a model that is trained on New York Times and a model maybe is not trained on New York Times in order to be able to use it or not use it. And then do you pay a subscription to the New York Times uh, for the model? Do you do rev share? I think they just need to find a business model. Um, the problem with it is, like, ha- like is happening with streaming services, that your cogs become significant. And then the current pricing for uh, you know large language model, which is already expensive, uh, might not be even possible. Uh, so you wouldn't be able to charge twenty dollars uh, from a person just to use the service, uh, because you, out of those twenty dollars, you need to run the inference uh, just to the compute cost you I don't know ten dollars uh, on average, and you need to pay five dollars to the New York Times and two dollars to whoever. So you need to find a business model that works. So I think it's a business problem. I don't think it's like. A, you know, moral problem. Uh, and this is actually part of what, what you're saying is behind, I guess, my prediction that um, we'll see the emergence of a robust and, I guess, popular uh, alternative to something like ChatGPT because the price, the, the cost associated with licensing all the data, the uh, or the, you know, to train the models, um, you know, striking the deals, 
Um, the, the question you talked about with, you know, references, you know, when you ask a question to um, Bing or ChatGPT and, you know, it includes like the little reference points, people have to remember that's what's happening now. What yeah, happens, what you know, doing, this is, right? yeah, this, this, this is, this is ephemeral. What happens in a year when it's much better? Are you, are, do we really expect it to have all these little reference points and links? Right. I don't think so. And so my prediction is that, you know, in the wild west of the internet, you'll see open source tools, AI right. tools that, the, the, you know, that you won't necessarily be able to bring a lawsuit against. You won't necessarily be able to hold one single person accountable for. Um, and at that point, then it becomes, I, I mean, then it becomes a, a very tricky legal conversation. Right. You know, but it's, it's, it's far it's more, to, it's far trickier. It's hard to prove, though, in certain cases, you get like exact quotes from specific sources or... You know, I don't know if you've seen the, the lawsuit of um, Scarlett Johansson suing this company for a cloning her voice. But also, by the way, the chat GPT voice sounds a lot like Scarlett Johansson. I think one of the problems, uh, you know, pe people are thinking that AI will replicate artists. Um, and I think that will happen. You know, you will have famous celebrities and singers um, licensed by estates and by management companies. But I think a, a bigger problem will be... AI models that, I guess, emulate the sound and feel of, let's say, a Michael Jackson or a Prince, right. but without directly copying that artist. And so I think we're kind of like in a murky area in terms of what will be coverable in terms of IP versus imitation, um, uh, parody, uh, and, and so I, I think this is kind of like the crux of where a lot of the argument is going in terms of, you know, humans versus AI. Can you train your model on existing work? And the idea that sweat equity of other humans who may in fact copy a human's work, or, you know, in their style, that kind of gets a pass. But when you automate that kind of, I guess, dynamic of sweat equity, it's uh, it's not as clear, and I think there is growing resentment, frankly, uh, in the creative class. Um, but I mean, I, I guess that kind of takes us a little bit as like further afield from Lura, you know, in terms of like the discussion. I wanted to like w one thing to go back to the business model discussion. Right. Um, right now, we're kind of in an era of these purpose-built hardware devices. Uh, one comes to mind, Rabbit, which just came out at CES. Yeah. Um, hum the Humane device, this the pin that you put on your lapel. And yeah. I think Tab, which just, I think, got funding uh, in addition to their pre-orders, which, you know, I'm sure was helpful. And the idea is that, you know, they're kind of leveraging these large language models to be, I guess, you know, these purpose-driven AI functions. And personally, I think as long as I have a smartphone right. or even, let's say, something like uh, the next generation of my AirPods. Right. Or, or well, smart glasses like, you know, Facebook just, Meta just released. Exactly. You, you know, the Ray-Bans. catches on this time. I don't know. Right. Well, no, no, no they're already catching on uh, more yeah. so than the first. Um, I, I feel like as long as I have that kind of stuff, I'm not sure I need 
uh, a brooch or a pendant. Right. But I think a more realistic approach is kind of what Laura is taking, which is, do I want an AI model that is just my everything app? Or do I want something that is specifically laser focused on one task and does it better than anything else? And that that's another, I, I feel like Laura is kind of very quietly, possibly part of a trend in AI where you will see these yeah. models specifically dedicated. I mean, sure, you can have your, your general purpose. What right. is it? Uh, like a restaurant where you get, you know, yeah. they do everything, but sometimes you want great steak. Sometimes you want, you know, exquisite sushi. Um, that's kind of like a flimsy example, but I think you understand yeah. where I'm oh, going. I, I mean, where you're going. I completely agree. I think, I think there are two approaches, uh, like in the business world on where it's going. One approach is that there's going to be, uh, one AI to rule them all that will do everything like open AI will take over, you know, the, the world in that sense. And the other, uh, school of thought says that you will have like this generic AI, but if you want to have a problem solved very well with AI, then it needs to be specialized. It needs to solve that problem. And there are specific verticals or specific problems like ours where without the data or the, the specific vertical data that is not available to, for example, you know, the big uh, language models because it's data that is of the right distribution for the right users and the right use case that without it, it, it's impossible to solve that problem because you need to learn what is the solution. And I'll give an example from our world, but it's I think it's also applicable to any kind of vertical uh, generative AI company that has proprietary data, uh, which can become a flywheel to improve the surface more and more and more, which is something a generic LLM cannot do. And it goes back to a very, uh, uh, I would say, basic property of, of this generative AI technology. And and the basic property is that how do you measure what's a good product? Like, what's a good generative AI? What's a good conversation? It's an ill-posed problem, right? It really depends on, as we mentioned earlier in the conversation, the use case, the user, uh, the problem you're trying to solve. Um, and that's measured per vertical. It's not like a general thing. There's no general good conversation. There's no general good uh, uh, English teacher, right? It really depends on, on the vertical. Um, and the only way you can learn, especially in our case, where we try to guess, like, you know, what's the principles of a good conversation? It's very hard. The only way you can learn it is from data. And the more data you have, and it's very specific data. It's data of a uh, language learner talking to an English teacher trying to improve their English. Uh, and they need to be engaged and they need to be retained and it needs to match their level of English. Uh, and it needs to talk about what's interesting to them and the AI needs to sense when it needs to be proactive and when it's need to kind of let the user kind of push the conversation because sometimes they get stuck. And there's no way to learn all those things except for learning it from your own data. And in verticals that are characterized by, I think, this kind of setting, um, you will have massive gains in kind of having specific verticalized AIs who are very good at what they do. And it all comes from the fact that uh, the general problem is not necessarily uh, well-defined. And the specific problem, you know, is also not well-defined. Like, you don't know what's a good metric. But in our case, you know, we can see if people are retained. We can see if they're happy with the product. We can measure success. Uh, and through more sophisticated tools, and we can discuss why it's not easy and you need 
I would say not just engineering capabilities, but really theoretical machine learning capabilities uh, in your product team, you can actually harness this data in order to keep improving your product every day. Uh, and we, you know, we doubled retention during 2023, which is something you don't usually see in consumer products. Uh, and it's just by keep training our own uh, model on our own data. And, and also, and yeah. Remind me, what what's the um, the in-app purchases component? Like, how does that? Oh, so the business model is very straightforward right now. And I'm not sure it's the best business model for us. Uh, but since we started in consumer, uh, we might also do B2B. We're getting approached by a lot of businesses because they're in place who want to improve their English and they need to reach a very high level. But for consumers, I didn't think that the pay for usage is a good model. It kind of disincentivizes you people to talk a lot and we want users to talk a lot. Uh, so we need to find a price where statistically we are not losing money. <laughs> like the unit economics makes sense. Uh, but we also incentivize users to use the app. I don't want someone to think every time before they want to talk English, oh, I need to pay you one more dollar. I don't think for consumers that's aligned with our interest of them uh, improving their English. Uh, so right now we have either an annual subscription or a monthly subscription. Uh, and it's very straightforward. You get a free trial uh, for the annual subscription for the monthly. I don't think you get, but I'm not sure, depending on which variant. Um, and then you just play a flat fee for a subscription. And it's on us to make sure that uh, it's pricey enough so that we can scale and you know have a healthy company. And on the other end, it's not too pricey. So we are uh, fulfilling a mission and actually letting anyone who can pay for Netflix, you know, overcome this barrier of English learning. Um, so so, so it, cannot, it can't be free as opposed to like the Duolingo strategy back in the day of freemium. Here, there are significant costs, like running those models is expensive. So we cannot give it for free, um, but we can give it at a price that, you know, pretty much most people can pay. Well, wait, wait, let's, what's, I mean, since you brought up Duolingo again, sure. what, what is the, <laughs> I guess, central difference between what you guys are doing and what they're doing, not just in terms of the AI, but approach? Like what is stopping right. them from attacking you? What is your defense layer against uh, something like that? First of all, you know, they can attack us if they, <laughs> if they want. They're a big company. Um, like there's always the question your investors ask, what if Google does it? Well, it usually right. doesn't happen, right? Um so I'll start by saying that I think Duolingo is an amazing company, really an amazing company. Uh, and they have a great mission and the product is fantastic and their culture is fantastic and the growth that they're showing and everything. But they are targeting a very different audience and a very different need. So Duolingo uh, can get you from knowing nothing to knowing a very little bit. And if you, you, know, you want to learn uh, Japanese and you want to be able to say a few sentences and kind of feel like you're learning the language, uh, then great, amazing. You want to learn Greek because you're a language hobbyist, amazing. Or maybe if you just want to do something that makes you feel good about yourself uh, and it's cognitive training instead of being on TikTok, but it's also as fun, that's what Duolingo does. And, you know, Louis Van said it himself many times. When you ask the Duolingo users, what would you do if you didn't have Duolingo and the famous Sean Alice question, uh, they say, we'd spend more time on TikTok because that's kind of part of the need that it serves. When you ask our users, what would you do if you didn't have Lura? They say, we'd either have no other choice or we'd go to private tutors because, and that also 
mostly depends on their socioeconomic state, right? If they can afford private tutors or not. Um, in contrast, or so for Duolingo, it's mostly for casual learners or hobby, language hobbyists who wants to kind of improve. And as evidence of that, their expansion is not so much to advanced English learning, but more to now music and uh, beginner math and kind of stuff like that. Uh, so a lot of basic tutoring, which is also very gamified. Um, but, so by the way, this is, um, I think I have a better analogy than the restaurant sure. analogy. Um, you mentioned, um, you know, this, the question that, you know, uh, investors often ask, uh, what if Google does it? Right. And, you know, if you're studying Japanese, for example, yes, you can kind of Google a phrase, you know, in, you know, like type in the hiragana or the kanji right. and try to get an answer, or you can even use Google translate. Right. Um, I think most people will tell you, you know, most language learners will tell you, at least for Japanese, Google Translate isn't great. Um, right. But there is a, any Japanese learner or, or student will tell you, well, they're probably familiar with this. It's called Jim Breen's J-Dict. And it's this very specialized grammar slash dictionary repository on the internet. That's very, very specific to Japanese, and it gets very yeah. obscure, but it, it gives you the, 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 right, the right answer. Number. Yeah, and, and, it's, and it's, it's just very specific to Japanese, um, and I often get answers from it that I can't get from something like Google. That's or, amazing. You know, I'll, yeah, I'll Google Translate. And, and so that's, that's what I'm thinking about with this. But I want to go back to something. I, I asked you this earlier, and I, it didn't, I don't feel like I got the full answer. You're focused sure. on English, and I understand English is the lingua franca of the world, right. and that's the you know the, the language right. of business and the and you know it's what they speak at the UN and blah blah blah. But I mean, it, are there any plans to attack other languages, or are you just is it just English for the foreseeable so, future? So maybe before I answer that, I'll like finish my answer to your previous question about the difference between us and Duolingo, because I think that leads to the answer to this question. So. While Duolingo is kind of catering to this casual learning audience or kind of hobbyist audience that learns multiple things, the people who are like in dire need of learning English seriously, and they need to become fluent in English and also in other languages, it's just that the market is smaller. You know, how many people you know are in dire need to become fluent in Japanese or in Italian, maybe with the exception of Spanish and Chinese, the, those markets are not as big. Um, those people who seriously need to learn a language and become fluent, the only solution they had is, is private tutors or courses. And that's super expensive, a lot of friction. It's embarrassing. So what happens is either, either people pay thousands of dollars a year, you know, a subscription on Cambly or Italki would cost between, I think, $1,700 to $4,000 a year, which is out of reach for most people. Or they just stay behind. And staying behind means lower salaries, lower, less opportunities, um, that's really a shame. And what we want to do is we target this, those people, and we want to build a product for them. And they need a product that is less gamified, by the way. They don't care about that as much. Wait, wait, wait. I want to, I want to focus on that. So sure. one of the fun things for me when I use Duolingo is the gamification. Right. Um, which is, you know, the, it, you know, it's, you know, the app, the app ecosystem kind of approach. What you seem to kind of push back against that approach. What, what's your? I think it's a great approach. I think gamification is wonderful, and I think in education it's also very important. I think that in Duolingo you mostly use it for the gamification and the idea that you're learning language, but not a lot of people become fluent from Duolingo. You know, I can 
fairly name, you know, five people uh, in the world. Um, but people who already kind of know English and really need to learn English, the gamification is something that assists them in, in retaining and kind of coming back another, for another day and becoming consistent with this habit. But it's not the main thing. They don't come just for the entertainment value. They have really serious motivation. So it needs to be a little, I think, more subtle. Um, it is existing in, in the product in the sense that, like in games, you need to be in flow, right? You need to not make too much effort and not too less effort. And after uh, each lesson, and that's why we have lessons, you need to feel that you learned something. You need to get a, a reward. You need to feel that you advanced. Uh, you need to feel like a sense of, I won a little bit today, or I almost won today. I'll come back tomorrow and I'll do it again. And that's also gamification. Uh, but it's not the main thing in the app. It is a driver for retention, and it's important. It makes it learning easier, I think, in education in general. So it's, I'm not against gamification. I'm all okay. for gamification. But I think for our audience, um, what's more, even more important, because gamification, you know, a lot of apps do it, and, you know, you do a lot of A-B testing, you find the, you know, <laughs> the right spot. Um, except for maybe the level of conversation, which is a little hard to do um, technologically. Um, for us, you need to have versatile, meaningful conversations that kind of vary over time and stay interesting so you don't get stuck on talking about the same thing again and again. And we're far from perfect there. Uh, you know, when we started, I think it was boring after a day, and now it's boring maybe after a few months. We, we do have users who've been using it since we started the app on a daily basis like every day talking to Lura, um, but we can make it much easier and much more interesting for them by creating a conversational journey that is for them, that is deep, that kind of talks about what's interesting to them, but changes it along the way so they don't feel that they get bored. And that's a little more like automatic content generation in a sense, right? You won't go to Netflix and watch the same episode unless you're a three-year-old, like my son who watches the same Paw Patrol episode again and again and again just because you get a, a reward in the end, right? You need to be engaged over time and you need to build this journey. And I think that's uh, in a product like ours that targets this audience, that's the most important and the biggest driver of retention and, and also of learning. I have two, I guess, final questions. One is... And I hope I answered like the first question. I didn't answer your English question yet. Well, no, no. Well, yeah, yeah, hit that. So the reason we started with English is because... Well, no, no, not why you started. Why, like, we oh. know why you started. Yeah. It's obvious why you started. Will we ever get, because, you know, when I think of the languages of the world, Chinese, Chinese, um, Chinese is a significant word. Spanish, to some degree, French, not as much as before, but Chinese, Spanish, and French seem to stand out as like kind of, you know. So I the think the words. market for people who want to learn French not as a hobby is not as big. Don't catch me on the numbers, but as Spanish and Chinese, definitely not as English. We will expand to other languages for sure. I think we'll first expand to languages which are uh, a big market for serious learners or for people who need to become fluent. So Chinese and Spanish, for example. Um, but I think a more natural, natural expansion for us is also to expand in English uh, with training people for example, uh, workplace skills or, you know, special, specific situations. Uh, also expanding to teaching children, which we don't do now, which is a little different, uh, but it's also a huge market and it's very important to start speaking English early on. And I think after we do that, we will expand to other languages uh, in the next couple of years. Uh, 
But I also think that startups need to be super focused and we need to be like the best English teachers in the world. Uh, and once we do that, then we can kind of, you know, expand to do other languages. Um, okay. But that's mostly a business thing, right? It's not like a ideal. Okay. okay. I don't think you'll go, you'll go broke focusing on English. So no, <laughs> it, it, yeah, that's the right focus. Right. Well, I want to kind of like begin to wrap up. We already kind of touched upon AGI, the singularity and yeah. that kind of thing. Um, I think everyone kind of agrees that, you know, there's, it's, it's difficult to divine the future and, and, and okay. see past the myths of what's happening right now. But I want to talk about your singularity or your potential singularity as a company, as a category. Right. What happens? And, and, and I see this on the horizon, maybe not in the next year, but absolutely within the next five years, the universal translator. Or have you already anticipated this world where uh, on our devices, on our glasses, whatever, you know, we're wearing or, you know, components around us. Uh, I don't know if you're a Star Trek fan, but in Star Trek, whenever, you know, right. they go to one of the Federation planets, yeah. there is a seamless, frictionless dialogue right. between the people because the universal translator is online and handling all the, you know, real time translation functions. I right. imagine that that is rapidly on the way. And I would see that as kind of your, you know, kind of doom apocalypse moment as a company. So I'm just wondering, like, have you anticipated this? Are you envisioning how you'd respond to that? So we actually had this debate um, before we started the company. Like, would translation kind of kill language learning uh, or English learning? Um, we also had a discussion, you know, we thought of different ideas, like, uh, would uh, it, machine learning kill transcription or translation, uh, like human translation. And I think that for transcription, for example, and it still hadn't killed human transcription, but it will, like, there's no doubt about it. Like even on our benchmarks, the AI is doing much better than uh, when we give it to humans, uh, like your average human to transcribe. But when people learn English, they're not just learning um, the technical translation of like uh, from uh, their language to English or or to Japanese, uh, you're learning a culture, you're learning to understand how people think in English, you're learning how to uh, express yourself. It's not just direct translation. I don't think you'll ever have like the, this Star Trek thing where you just direct translate and it's the same as if you were actually understanding the language. Uh, because you need to understand cultural aspects, you need to understand the context, you need to understand phrases, you need to understand... Um, how do you behave? In, you, know, you behave very differently in the U.S. than in Japan, for example, or in China. So I, I just well, I, I have to jump in. I, I, I absolutely agree with you. As a, I'm a hardcore Star Trek fan, and so yeah. many times I've seen this like translator dynamic in, in the fictional translator dynamic in play. We use a device called the Universal Translator. It's like an alien dictionary with hundreds of languages programmed into it. And it can learn new languages very quickly, but it doesn't always work. And when that happens, it's up to me to try to translate. I'm sure I don't have to tell you, it can be really hard sometimes. One wrong word can mean the difference between saying, take my hand or take my life. And it absolutely, I, I, there are so many you know, there are some cultures where just a certain move of a head, you know, or, 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 yeah, yeah, that was what I was referring to. Yeah. Um, or just the way in which, you know, some Japanese people, you know, 
maybe a stutter or, or, or a pause is not that they don't know what to say. It's, it's actually part of what they are right. about to say. And that's very difficult to, I guess, translate, you know, you know, through, you know, you need AI. To, you need to understand uh, the medium or the language that you are in in order to be your best self in the situation. I don't think that this technical language translation will ever be as good because it's not the same problem you're coming to solve, right? You're coming to solve. You want to be, in a sense, when you're learning English, you want to be in English uh, like a native English speaker. Like you want to understand the situation. You want to understand the person. You want to understand the context, the reference. You want to react correctly. When you are learning Japanese and you're in Japan, you want to understand the subtext. You want to understand what's happening. It's not just learning like a technical translation. I think language is a lot more than that. And in that sense, I don't think it'll ever replace it. And people want to learn languages because it's not just learning languages, learning a world. It's not like learning a coding language in a sense or a different coding language, right? You're learning a world of, of other human beings and that's something that connects us. And I think that's never going away. Uh, I would give another analogy where I think it might go away. I think there is a big difference in learning a language in writing and learning a language in speaking or conversational. So for example, when you write emails, there are cultural contexts, but it's not live, it's not online. You can stop and think, and you can have tools who kind of help you understand the context, you know, take a one sentence and explain it in like three paragraphs because you don't need to react live. So like Grammarly or like, you know, Wartune or other assistants that help you in writing. And in writing, it's more remote. You don't standing in front of a person. It's an offline thing. So maybe there, I think translation could help. Not sure, but maybe. But I think the way we're talking right now, I don't think like me not speaking English, having like a universal translator uh, would have made this conversation a very good conversation. I think it would have been okay, better than not knowing English at all. Uh, but I would still have wanted to learn English if I need to get around the world and kind of build a career or kind of meet people and talk in their language, I don't, so I don't see it replacing it. Uh, but we did have a meaningful discussion about it before starting the company. And, uh, you know, and so in that respect, I guess what you're doing is less strict um, language tutoring, but more culture tutoring. I think it's both. I think if you learn a language and you don't learn like the essence of the language and the culture and how people speak, then you don't really know the language. Like, you know it on a certain level. But if I want to work, for example, in an American company, it's not enough that I just technically know how to say correct sentences in English with correct grammar. I need to understand the language and the people and how to behave. Um, it's part of the language, um, in my opinion, at least. I do not, understand not trying to... Uh, yeah, go sure. Ahead. I do understand there's a distinction between the technical correctness of language and actually uh, handling yourself in the situation. But I think for people who want to learn English eventually their aim is not to be technically correct. It's to be able to express themselves and to right. communicate with other people. And the language is, is the medium. Do you see any kind of other categories that don't intersect with yours that sure. are, that you think are ripe for this approach where you use AI to kind of laser focus on just one area? Do you see any other areas where that might be some emerging, interesting use cases? So Again, think, outside of Lura. Yeah, I think even just, you know, expanding Lura, I think tutoring at large, which is something we'll be aiming for in the future, is something that's ripe. I think uh, 
in tutoring, so there's language, there's mathematics, there's history. Uh, there's a, a wonderful chart I saw uh, that uh, Sal Khan showed, I think, on a TED Talk. Where you Khan see Academy. That, yeah. So he talked. He did a talk, I think, on TED or something, uh, where he showed the difference that having a private tutor makes. And it's like two standard deviations of improvement in your like, uh, career or school or whatever. Uh, so having a private tutor for everything, I think, and it's different for English or for math or for anything, uh, could be super beneficial. Uh, I think in medicine, like healthcare, uh, but I do think in healthcare, we're not quite there because there is an issue with factuality. I think um, you cannot trust the answers that you get from AI today 100%. Hallucinations alone. <laughs> Good. <laughs> yeah. Um, in legal, by the way, I think uh, companies like uh, Harvey, you know, they're vertical companies you can do very well. So I think there are other verticals uh, where the data can be very beneficial. You know, it occurs to me that if um, AI art or image generation had been introduced instead as a kind of tutor to help, right. you know, traditional artists learn art techniques and study art history, there might have been a much different reaction. But since it kind of came to the fore as kind of like a, a would-be or, or, or an attempted replacement, the right. hostility is, you know, on, on 100. But, um, I but yeah, this is... I used, to, I used to paint a lot both sketch and in oil and a lot. And when I was young, one of my frustrations on why I eventually didn't go to art school is the fact that with a camera, you can do so much better. The technical skills that you need in order to do art, they keep changing, right? Today, you don't need those technical skills uh, that we needed when we, you know, did like uh, charcoal sketches or stuff like that in order for them to be realistic. And then you don't need the skills you needed in Photoshop in order to be an artist uh, in that sense. Uh, and then today, maybe you don't even need a camera in order to imagine something that you want to create. Um, I think the essence of art is actually in the idea and thinking what you want to create and kind of building it. And, and, you know, the technical skills are, and I'm a big fan of technical skills, but they're just technical skills that enable you to do something. Um, so being an artist will be the same thing, just for different technical skills, I think, or maybe easier to kind of generate bigger ideas. Well, let me, since you went there, as a computer scientist, I have to ask you, Sure. do you apply that same uh, reasoning to... Coding. Coding. Yeah. Like, do you, do you uh, at some point, do you Definitely. feel that hard coding skills will basically, you know, kind of, you know, I guess... Um, be obsolete and, and, and you'll have to, it, it will be more up to the people who have interesting ideas who understand the code, but aren't necessarily coding. I, yeah, 100%. I think okay. that if you look at the history of coding, even with languages, it really changed, right? When you assembly, like, or machine language, which I used to know when I was younger, it's very hard to write something meaningful. It would take like a century to write a piece of code that does anything. Uh, but then you have higher level languages like Python uh, or Ruby or whatever, which allow you in something that is not very different from English to create amazing things. Uh, and I think with AI, we'll get closer and closer to natural language. And even today, like my team, when they program something, you know, they don't need to write as much boilerplate code. They go to Copilot and a lot of the code is already generated, but they need to understand what they want to build. So the, like the product skills or the the formalizing the problem or understanding what you want to build 
I think becomes more and more important. And the specific nuance of, of this language or another language will be less and less important. And, and I think we're in a very pivotal time right now because, as you just mentioned, like someone who does know how to code right. is the person who will be able to identify errors, hallucinations. And I think the right. same holds true for writing and visual art. If you're if you're a traditionally trained artist or writer, you can quickly see, oh, well, that's that makes no sense, or that's uh, poorly, you know, thrust into that area. And you can kind of almost, I guess, curate slash edit uh, right. the work. And I think the concern for some people, though, is, you know, what happens, you know, because none of this is static. So what right. happens when this advances to the point where not as much curation and editing is needed? Then what? You so know? I think then the skills that will be needed are, well, the core skills, which are um, defining the problem, defining the solution, defining what you want us, the experience to be in a way that's clear, uh, that creates a good, if you do product, good experience for your users, understanding uh, product in a sense. And that will be the work. The work wouldn't be to translate this into like machine language. It will be to define the experience, which is well, my job today in a sense. I don't train the models myself anymore, unfortunately, although I really love it. Um, and I think in art, it's the same, right? You will want to, today, to just make something that looks like a photo, you don't need to be an artist anymore, right? But back way then, that, that was like the skill. The skill was drawing something realistic. And now that's not interesting if you can do or not do. What's interesting is what you choose to draw or what you choose to create. Uh, and I think that will be the, the main skill. Um, and also in writing, so you can have, you know, your various uh, AIs who write, write different things. But the key thing is like, what do you want to express? What do you want? What's the story you want to tell? That won't come from the AI, right? You need to decide what you want to, what's the story you want to tell. Um, and I think that's always uh, going to be the thing. Uh, in those do, problems. Wait, do you? Do you? Yeah, I do. I, and How I think, long, wait, what, like what happens when we are 10 years ahead from where we're at now? And we have, you know, not just AGI, but we're, you know, tickling the edges of super well, intelligence. AGI, AGI is not something that is very well defined. Like, what's AGI? Well, yeah, we don't, let's not even put a definition on it. Yeah. Let's just say something that to the human interaction, the, the average human uh, interacting mm-hmm. with it, they have appear like great, they, they have great difficulty determining right. whether or not it's far beyond any Turing test. Like they Turing. have. No, no, no. But far beyond any Turing test, they yeah. have great difficulty determining whether or not this person, that this is a person with feelings and a backstory right. and, ha- you know, and a rough and tumble upbringing, right. you know, like, and, and yeah. you know, I mean, we have friends that, you know, in some cases we generally or primarily interact with via text. So a lot of friends. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, so what, you know, I mean, so I, that's I, a, it's a different question. There are two questions here. One is, like what will be the difference between interacting with an AI and interacting with a person? And I think at some point, maybe no difference for some people, hmm. unless you have the in-person thing, which I think is still very important. Um, I think we need to be outside and we need to meet people in real life. I think it's super important for us as humans. And I don't see AI replacing it in the next 10 years or 20 years. Uh, beyond that, you know, I don't know. You, but, you, you, um, you mentioned your son is three. Yeah. When your son is 10, 12 years old, maybe right. you'll have this conversation earlier. Will you advise your son to 
enter the field of programming, you know, software development, That's art, music? Question. I don't know. Like, what could you like? Because you sound optimistic, but as someone with a young child, I'm curious, like, what would you like as you look out into kind of like the next couple of decades? Right. How so would you, think, what, 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 how would you prepare? What, what equipment would you give your child to prepare for that? First of all, I think it's a very tough question. Like the world is changing rapidly. And I think what are the technical skills that you that will be required is unclear. I do think that there are skills that are non, in a sense, non-technical, which is what I started talking about before when I said it's two different problems. So separating or differentiating between interacting with a machine or a person, that's one problem. The second problem is like, if everything is so easy, you want to create something and it's so easy, you don't need technical skills, then what's the purpose, right? What's the skills that you need? In my opinion, the skills that you need is to know what you want to create. Like you need imagination and you, because now that's what's left, right? You need to be a product person or you need to be an artist. You can do whatever you want. Now you need to decide what you want to create that will bring value to the world or value to people around you or joy to yourself, by the way. I love music. I'm a terrible singer and I'm a terrible <laughs> musician. I don't play because, uh, you know, it brings value to someone else. I, I play because I find joy in, like in, in playing music or, or singing or listening to music, right? Um, so I think those skills of, of creation, of deciding what you want to create, what you think will bring value, and using AI as the technical uh, uh, tool to do that, that will be the skill. What does that define as skills? I think critical thinking, I think physics and mathematics are always great skills. Hold on. I don't think I was specific enough. I'm saying <laughs> if you're trying to equip your child with for the, the, future. The, the, the future to take care of him or herself. Right. So I'm not saying just simply, oh, well, interacting I, with AI. I'm saying building your life. You know, be, assuming we don't have universal base, basic income right. and assuming that, you know, you've been a good dad and you said, well, yeah, I'm wealthy now, but you can't, you know, you're going to go not, build your I'm thing. Not, <laughs> I'm not that wealthy. <laughs> um, you know, how does it, what tools do you give yeah, him? Or, I understand the know. question. I, I started by answering like the previous question of like, what's, what skills are important, I think. And I think that translates to this uh, uh, question. I think the skills are important is to understanding how to create value. Like what's, in, and that requires like those very basic skills, I think, in a sense. So critical thinking, uh, logic, um, analytical skills, um, I think are very important. So my son, if he's like me, he'll be like, you know, mathematically inclined. So, and if he's like his mom, he'll be <laughs> artistically inclined. Um, or a combination. Um, so if, if he's inclined, uh, for example, to like mathematics or sciences, I would push him to learn like those basic sciences. I think learning mathematics and learning physics helps you think about anything and can really give you those skills to kind of solve how to solve problems, no matter what, what's the medium. What is a specific profession that I would learn and learn? I, it's a great question. I'm not sure that computer science is learned today or coding. And there's a difference between computer science and coding. I think computer science, like the principles that you learn on how to address and how to solve problems and how to think of problems will be relevant. Coding, maybe not, probably. You know, in 10 years, probably not. Uh, just like the learning how Python or learning uh, 
and you know C plus plus. That's probably not relevant. Um, okay, so you're but you're optimistic. I am optimistic. Uh, well, I think in nature, first of all, always uh, careful but optimistic. Um, but yeah, I think in general, if you look at history, technology um, as m- in most cases has improved our lives and kind of helped uh, equate uh, people and kind of help people uh, with less means to kind of uh, you know rise above their uh, the cards that they were dealt or kind of use the cards into a better future. Going back to what we said earlier, I think we need to be careful that AI is not super concentrated in the ends of a few, kind of not allowing everyone to have the same opportunities. And uh, I think that's a big risk with AI. Like if that will be something that is just for the wealthy or just for the rich or just for a few companies and not uh, within reach for everyone, that could create uh, inequality and kind of less equality of opportunity. And that will be risky. Agreed. You know, I'm thinking about some of the, I guess, legal battles happening right now, particularly I'm thinking about the visual artists and I'm thinking, you know, right now, I think their intent is uh, pure and correctly motivated in that they're trying to, you know, protect traditional artists. But what happens if, okay, some deal is struck, some, some law is, you know, initialized where, okay, now suddenly, you know, the only this is, I don't think this will happen, but let's just say hypothetically, suddenly the only places that can generate uh, visuals using AI are right. these giant companies or companies that have a lot of money. And the only thing you can use to generate AI imagery or not just op- open source tools, but maybe in some cases, poorly designed open source tools right. that don't give you great results. That is actually taking the power further away from, you know, independent artists. So there's an ironic or or a potentially ironic uh, outcome there, if not handled correctly. And I think we need to be careful about that. That actually, I think, not maybe this this specific scenario, but a scenario where AI is concentrated due to, uh, you know, regulatory capture in the hands of a few and kind of only gives opportunity to ones who, who are there in those groups. I think that's a bad future, and I don't think we want to go there. I think we want to be having AI kind of empowering everyone, kind of giving everyone the ability to express themselves, their ideas, to create stuff, uh, to build stuff. Um, and that would be a good future, I think. Uh, okay, well, Roy Moore, the found, co-founder and CEO yeah. of Laura, just uh, remind everyone how they can access the app and in its various forms. Sure. We are now on the App Store. You can just look for Lura, L-O-O-R-A, download it and subscribe. Um, And we will be in Android soon. We're not there yet. And you can also go to Lura.ai. Right. Uh, You can go in there. There's also a link to the app. And for our part, you can go to the 100-year podcast uh, or rather, you can go to 100year.com to check out previous episodes of the podcast. Uh, you can check out our newsletter, uh, The 100-Year Lens, which is at 100year.substack.com. And uh, if you're not watching us, you can listen to us on Spotify, Apple, and your favorite podcast hosting app, as well as YouTube, where if you're on YouTube, please give us a like and a subscribe. We'd really appreciate it. Thanks again, Roy. This has been The 100-Year Podcast, and we will see you next time.